Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we are not going to be turning to 1 Thessalonians. I would like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians, and we will be going to chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. Paul writes, as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has given and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. There ends the reading of God's inerrant word this morning. Join me in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your word that you have given to us, a word that we could not have outside of your gracious revelation, the moving of the Holy Spirit as you move men to write it so that we now have the very words of God with us, that we might know you, we might know what you expect from us, and that we are not left guessing, but that we can know for sure. And so today, as we look at your word, again, I pray that you would impress upon us the truths of your word as the Holy Spirit teaches us, and we would again see the glories of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection and what he has achieved for us because of his great love. Pray that you will be again in the hearing of your word this morning, I pray in your name. Amen. Well, we're starting into a different book, and we don't normally do that, it just hopping into the middle. But we do know if we were to summarize the book of Colossians in one word, and we like to have these words, we want to talk about the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ, or we could say the preeminence of Christ. This book deals with Jesus Christ, and really is, is the, is we could say, the the text that you want to go to if you want to see the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ and how wonderful and how great and, and supreme he is. Now, as Paul writes the book of Colossians, he is not in the most happy of circumstances. This is a prison epistle, and Paul is in Rome, in prison, under house arrest, where he will spend two years under house arrest in Rome. He's under house arrest, and yet he can still have, though he is not free to travel, he is free to have visitors. And while Paul is in Rome, as we put the pieces together, Epaphrodites, Epaphras comes to Paul in Rome from Colossae. 
Now, if we, if, we, if we put the pieces together again, we realize that the church at Colossians, the Colossians church, sorry, is founded by Epaphras. This church was not actually planted by Paul, but Epaphras. It seems that he was one of Paul's disciples in Ephesus where he learned at his feet. He, got, he was saved learned doctrine, and then therefore returned to his hometown and started a church. It's pretty good. He learned from the Paul, he went home, and he began a church. But as that church continued to grow, there started to be troubles that started, and in fact, there was enough troubles that it brought Epaphras back to Rome to Paul, who was in prison, some eight years later, he comes back and he visits him because there are problems and there is false teaching that is starting to come into the church and he's concerned and he goes to Paul for, we could say, for advice or for help. And so he gives him this update as to what's going on to the church, what's happening and the threat that is the church faces. And so there... What seems to be at the heart of this is that there have been false teachers who have come with a false presentation of who Jesus Christ is. And so Paul here, as he writes, responds to those, those worries of their dear pastor who has come to them with these problems. And he takes up this pen and he begins to write this letter to the Colossians, to the believers there, to exalt and to show the preeminence and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, we're not told exactly what the threats were, but we gather from the letter there's a mixture of things that are taking place at this church. There's elements of paganisms. There's elements of Gnosticism. There's elements of Jewish legalisms. Uh, legalism. Legalisms. Uh, so there, there are those Jews who are trying to bring the dietary laws and festivals and Sabbaths and put them on the believer. There's Greek philosophy that sought in some way to synchronize their, and these ideas to synchronize these ideologies to the gospel and to present a different Christ, an altered Christ, a slightly different picture to who he was, a different picture as to what the church was what it was to be a Christian. And so Paul responds to provide a defense to this church, a defense of the preeminence of Christ in all areas of life. And he does this, and how he does this, as he begins really with an exhortation back in chapter 2, verse 8. And really, after a lengthy introduction, he really begins the body of this letter in chapter 2, verse 8. This is where he begins to now teach specifically about the supremacy of Christ. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 8, he gives this command. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And so he begins this exhortation, and now he begins for the next 
bunch of verses all the way down to chapter 3, verse 4. He, he starts to write the body of the letter. And he, allow, he lays the foundation of his argument and his thesis. And everything from, the, from this thesis flows through the rest of the book. He says in 2 verse 8, and again to all the way to chapter 4 verse 3, Watch out, be vigilant, that no one gains control over you by carrying you off as plunder. So he puts the targets on these things that were threatening their philosophy with their philosophy of love of wisdom and love of human wisdom and human intuition and empty deceit and so-called knowledge. He says... Be careful, Colossians. There's a knowledge that seems good. It looks good when you first see it, but it's really useless. It's, it's deceitful. It's of no spiritual value. And so Paul begins to counter those ideas, and he, and he does this at the beginning in verse 9 by focusing on the accomplishments of God in Christ to show what is done in Christ. He says, according to the apostolic doctrine, it is superior to any of these philosophies that you have come. Any of these ideas that have come by human intuition, he says, the apostolic doctrine that you are given about Jesus Christ is better. And so he begins here in verse 9 and goes all the way to verse 15. And in this, he gives us a series of indicatives. We've talked about that at hermeneutics class. He gives us a bunch of facts, a bunch of doctrine, a bunch of statements to, to make a defense of who Jesus Christ is. A bunch, in other words, all of these commands, or all of the, I mean, all of these facts, all of these ideas are to keep them from being taken captive by anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he does in verses 9, 10, and 11, and 12. He begins with these. Before we get to 13, Paul says, for example, the, the first indicative is the fact in verse 10. He says that in him you have been made complete. In Jesus Christ you have been made complete. You must understand that if you are to counter the threats of syncretism, of, of these ideologies that are trying to come alongside and be alongside what the truth and seek to invade your, fee, your faith, you must realize that you are what? You're already complete in Christ. In verse 11, he goes on to say this, that you are in Christ, you were also what? Circumcised. Now, what he's referring to here in verse 11 is not physical circumcision. He goes on to say it's circumcision without hands. In other words, he's talking here not about physical circumcision, but spiritual circumcision. In other words, the removal of the flesh, being given a new heart. It deals, it's dealing with the sin nature. That sinful nature that you had is being what? Circumcised, taken out, removed. Then in verse 12, he goes on to say this, In Christ you were raised up also and were also raised up. In other words, Christ was raised, you were raised, and you were immersed into Christ. 
You share in his death. You also share in his resurrection. Then he says in verse 12 that you have been buried with him into baptism. You've been raised and you've been raised in his baptism. Here he's not referring to physical water baptism, but he's speaking about a spiritual immersion. When Paul speaks of, of baptism, most of the time he's speaking of a spiritual immersion. He's not referring to water. And so he says, you were buried with Christ by being immersed into him in which you also received. You were raised up with him in faith. The working of God who raised him from the dead. So he says, understand these facts. Remember these things. These are very three important facts that we must understand. These are facts which distinguish the doctrine according to Christ as opposed to the doctrine of the world. And then as we come to our text this morning, we see three more facts, three more indicatives, three more things that we must understand. And these three really focus on the cross and the resurrection. And we could say this, in this section, we see the victory of Christ that he, what he has done for us. The fact that God, because we are in Christ, has rescued us. And he's rescued us from death, sin, and Satan. He has rescued us from death, sin, and Satan. And he says, because we are in Christ, because what Christ has done on the cross... These things now are ours. These things are what we have been rescued from. Because he died, because he rose, these are ours. And so he begins. He says, the first thing that you were rescued from is from death. He says in verse 13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive together with him. Paul says, when you were. In other words, the language here, he is saying there was a time in the past where this was who you were. You were spiritually dead. You had no spiritual life. You had no ability to understand spiritual truth. The Bible tells us the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they are what? Spiritually discerned. And he says, you were dead. And he says, you were dead, not physically, though this word is used for physical death, but spiritually because you were what? You're in Adam. He said, you are in Adam just like God said to Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. He says, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now we know that Adam just didn't drop dead physically, but we know that he what died spiritually, and it began the process of physical death. Because he was now separated from God. He would now was, had sin between him and God. And in fact, 
Because of that, Romans 5 tells us, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And here's the thing. Because Adam sinned, everyone is what? Born spiritually dead. You're not born good. You're not born good and your environment corrupts you. You are born spiritually dead and hostile towards God. Unable to see his truth as good. And so Paul says, when you were dead, you were dead in your transgressions, he says. Transgressions is, is, is a violation of moral standards, offense, wrongdoing, sin. The idea is that you cross the line challenging God's boundaries. And you'll notice this. He says transgressions. In other words, he, the emphasis is on individual acts, not just sin as, as a general, but individual acts. In other words, everyone who is spiritually dead sins. That's what they do. The result of being spiritually dead is to what? To sin. That's all you can do. You can never live and do anything that is pleasing to God and for his glory because you are rejecting him. And he says, you were, this is the state you were in. You were dead and you were dead in your transgressions. Your sins were piling up. You continue to do them. And he says, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says, in other words, he's, this is a word that is used for Gentiles. The Gentiles were uncircumcised, not like the Jews. The Jews were circumcised physically, and that made them was part of the covenant. And so the Jews thought they were right with God because they had been circumcised. And he says, all who are sin are like the Gentiles who weren't, didn't have the covenants, who were separated from God. They were outside of that relationship. Ephesians 2.11 says, Wherefore, remember that you were in past times, you were Gentiles, uncircumcised. In other words, you were unbelievers. And Paul says, all those who are dead in sin are like, are like Gentiles, like those who never were in relationship with, to the covenant. And he says, at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he says, that's who you were. You had no hope. You had no promise. You had no revelation given to you. You had no relationship with God. He says, this was the condition of everyone who was ever born. You were enemies of God. You were dead in your transgressions and in the circumcision of your flesh. And then this glorious part of the verse, he says this, in the end of verse, in, in verse 13. 
says, you were dead in your transgression, in the uncircumcision of your flesh. He made you alive together with him. Sound familiar? Right? Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy, right, with his great love, made us alive together with him and has seated us in the heavenly places. And he says, here's the good news. God has made you alive. Now notice this. He has made us alive. Paul now switches from the you to us because Paul includes himself with the rest. And he says, God the Father took the action. He made us alive. He, he's the one who authored it. He's the one who sent the Spirit to regenerate us. And he said, he's made us alive together with him. And now we are spiritually alive. Why? Because God made a definitive act. It's a definitive act in the past that he what saved us. If you're saved today, it's because God reached to you. You didn't choose God. He chose you. Now, certainly you came in faith and repentance because when, when God regenerates you, that's what you do of your free will. But bottom line is, he made you alive. He's the one who chose you. He's the one who downloaded spiritual life into you. He regenerated you. He made your deadness alive. There was a resurrection that took place. You'll notice this. He made us together with him. Speaking of a close, intimate union. He, 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 it's, a, it's a past completed action in this intimate union that has placed us together with Christ. Throughout the Testament, we find an intimate union of the believer with Christ affirmed. We are crucified with him. We die with him. We rise with him. We live with him. We reign with him. We are joint heirs with him. We shall share in the, his sufferings on earth. And we shall share his glory with him on his throne. And he says, all of these things are ours because we are what? In Christ. Because what he has done for us. Because we have his righteousness. Now we are in him. And so he says, Christ has what? Rescued us from death. God has rescued us through Christ. From death. We are no longer spiritually dead. We are no longer without hope. We now have spiritual life. We now have the promise of heaven. We now have the promise of seeing our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to the Colossians, this is all you need. Recognize what you have in Christ. He is sufficient because he has made you alive. And now today we rejoice because the risen Lord Jesus Christ is waiting for us. And because he lives, we live. And so we rejoice today. Because we have been rescued from spiritual death. Secondly, we'll notice this. Not only has he rescued us from death, he's rescued us from sin. 
Now, he can't just forgive. God cannot just, as it were, let it go. God's love does not override his righteousness and his justice and his holiness. So how can it be that God could make us alive, us who were hostile to him, us who were sinning against him, us who had a hatred in our heart for him, us who blasphemed his name? How can it be that he could make us alive? How could he do that justly? How could he do that rightly? Well, he tells us here in the the end of verse 13 and into verse 14, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Having forgiven us all our transgressions. Now this word for forgiveness is an interesting word. It's not the normal word for forgiveness. It's a word that is that is centered around grace. In other words, this forgiveness was an act of grace. It was not earned. It was not something that God felt obligated to give, but it was completely by grace. And he says this forgiveness, this grace that was extended by God has forgiven us of all our transgressions. All. Not some, not the lesser ones, not the less offensive ones, but every single one. No matter what sin that we committed before we came to Christ, no matter how heinous, no matter how awful, no matter how repugnant, God has forgiven what? All. Not some. All. We now have that forgiveness for everything. He's forgiven us all of our trespasses. Psalm 32, 1 says, Happy is he who transgression is forgiven, whose sin is removed or covered. What a joy. Isaiah 1.18, Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins may be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red like crimson, they shall be like as wool. How much forgiveness is there? Total, white as snow, white as wool. Isaiah 55.7, Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. And to our God, he will be a, he, for he will abundantly pardon. He says, listen, the reason God can make you spiritually alive and give you spiritual life and restore you is because he has forgiven all of your sins. Every transgression, every single one, past, present, and future, They have all been taken care of in the cross. There's nothing that you will stand before God now and give an account for. God's not going to pull up your sins and play them on a great big video screen and give you condemnation. He says, forgiven. Remember when Satan goes into heaven and he's the accuser of the brethren, what is he, what is Jesus Christ do. He mediates for us. Forgiven. I pay that price. 
He has forgiven us all our sin. He gives us more detail here. He says he's forgiven all our sins. How did he do that? Having canceled out the certificate of debt. Having canceled the certificate of death. Paul uses a metaphor here. This this certificate of death. He says it's been canceled. Cancel means to wipe out, to remove, to leave no trace, to obliterate. This word was used of cleaning documents. In the ancient world, documents were written on papyrus, and papyrus was a kind of paper made of bulrush. There was another thing used, vellum, which was made from animal skin hide, and both were fairly expensive and wouldn't be wasted. And since no ancient ink had any acid in it, the ink never bit the papyrus or the vellum anyway. But it lay on the surface. If nobody fussed with it, it remained there because it didn't bite into the surface and it had no acid. Sometimes a scribe, in order to preserve his paper, and because he didn't have too much of it, money, to get more of it, he would simply take a sponge and he would wipe it off. He would take it, And he would wipe that surface until there was nothing left. And he says, this is what God did for you. He said, he took the certificate of debt and he obliterated, he wiped it out, he blotted it. He didn't just cross it out, he completely wiped it clean so that there is nothing left recorded on that papyrus. In other words, that certificate of debt against you has been completely wiped out. It has completely been washed. There's no longer any record of that. It has been forgiven. Now, a certificate of debt of debt is really a handwritten document that is written to record a promissory note or an IOU. We're familiar with the IOU, right? You go to the store, you look at an item, you don't have the money with you and you say, listen, I'll pay you later. I'll pay you on a plan or I'll go home and get my purse, but I want to take the item with me. So I'll give you an IOU and you write out a certificate that says, I will pay the price for this. I will record this and I will pay this price back. And he says, for us, There was a certificate of debt. We had an obligation to obey God. We had an obligation to keep his commandments. But he said, there is an obligation now to us recorded with, because our sins are now recorded. We have broken his commandments. And and there's a mission of guilt for us. The idea is that we have all signed this, our allegiance to God, and we have broken it. And now we owe, and we admit that we owe to him obedience. It's a signed confession of debt of our sin, piled up. Can you imagine what we might owe God for a lifetime of sin? And he says, there is this certificate of debt. And he says, he has wiped it clean. 
And he says, this certificate consists of decrees against you. In context, it most likely points to the Mosaic Law. All those decrees that were written, this was God's command for you. And we agreed that that we needed to keep it. And we agreed that we, we did not keep it. That we are in debt to him. And so we have broken, as it were, the commandments of God. Not just the Mosaic Law, but includes more than this. It includes God's standard. It's his righteousness, the things that he requires the righteousness that remain, is necessary for righteousness to remain in order for God to be pure. And he says, these decrees that were written down were hostile to us. They were against us. In other words, they were condemning us. And he says... He's blotted it out. He has simply wiped the slate clean so that that certificate no longer is against us. In fact, he says he has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. Now, Paul is changing his picture here from the certificate of death. And he says he's taken, taken away our debt and he has what? Nailed it to the cross. And right away we see here that he has taken our sin and he has what? Nailed it to the cross. In other words, he has taken our sin and he has imputed it to Jesus Christ. He has set it aside from us. He takes that handwritten certificate. He doesn't just ignore it. God can't just wipe away sin. He can't just let it go. He is righteous and holy. He is wrathful and he must deal with sin. Something had to be done with those circumstances and God has taken them in Jesus Christ and he has taken them away. He's taken all those IOUs, all the activities that are against us. He's taken our guilt away. He's taken our condemnation away. And he's nailed it to the cross. I want to make it clear here. This is not a call for us to get a cross up front. And every time you have a sin you want to overcome, that you come and you nail it to the cross. Right? What he's speaking of here is that when a person was crucified, as they were crucified, the criminal would have a plaque that was put on the top of his cross and what would be put on there were his crimes. And this would testify to the guilt for which, for which he was paying for. In other words, it would, when his death would pay for all the crimes that were on that plaque on the top of the cross. We saw that with Jesus Christ, did we not on the cross? In Matthew, in John 27, 37, and John 19, where Jesus was placed the charge against Jesus, where the Jews placed the charge against Jesus above his head. Who is he claiming to be, what, king of the Jews? That was his crime, claiming to be the king of the Jews. 
And so Christ, in his death, satisfied the demands of the law. Every sin that was against us has been paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ because he nailed it to the cross. He died for our sins. And again, the complete, it, it highlights the completeness of the removal. It was taken away and nailed to the cross. And so Jesus Christ has rescued us from sin and from guilt. We no longer stand under the guilt of sin because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. He took that sin, all of it. Nothing is left to our account. It has all been imputed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And now we have been what? Imputed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We get to heaven not because we're good, not because we tried hard, not because we're good people, but on the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And now God looks at you as if you had lived Christ's perfect life. That's good news. Because every single one of our sins has been paid for by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He took it all. So we've seen so far that God has rescued us from death. He's rescued us from sin. And now it says he rescues us from Satan. Verse 15 When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. We might not know this and we might not think about this, but before we were saved, we were the laughing stock of the demonic world. Because here are human beings created in the image of God who are to reflect his image. But rather than reflecting his image and rather reflecting his values and his characters, in his character, we did the exact opposite. We defied him. We demonstrated disdain for his ways and for his character. Paul often mentions this in his letters, and here he mentions it again. That when we do not act as God has called us to be, and as human beings defy God as unbelievers, They are not fulfilling the purpose for which their creator created them. And therefore, Satan loves that. So he says, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. And he says, here's what Christ did. This is what was accomplished on the cross 
for us. Because we are in Christ, because what God has done through Jesus Christ, we are no longer under the power of Satan. We are no longer under the power of his dominion. In fact, he says here that he ultimately made a public display of them. This verb, he made a public uh, to, to display means to expose, to make an example of, or to disgrace. The ESV actually translates them and put them to open shame. Now notice this, he's already accomplished this. He already has done this. This is something that took place, another decisive, completed action by our Lord Jesus Christ. And he made the powers and authorities to be what? A spectacle. They were humiliated. And now notice this. He says he did it publicly. He did it publicly. Now at first you might think, well, he did it before all humanity. Every, every human being could see this. But Paul has more than this in mind. He has a greater public court than the court of humanity. It includes the grand schemes of heavens, all of the things that were created by God, all the principalities and powers. God made it known to them. He didn't make it just by proclamation, but he made it by visible display. And he made a spectacle in two ways. First of all, he made a spectacle of them and and he continued to do this by what? When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. This word is used for stripping off a garment. And here it is used in the idea of, of stripping off in the fact of disarming. In other words, he took away the power of the principalities and powers. He disarmed them, right? It's just like when someone breaks into your home. If they're carrying a gun, they've got the upper hand. But you disarm them and you take it away. And now what? They no longer have that power over you. And he says, this is what's taking place. God has disarmed the rulers and authorities. He has disarmed arm them. He not, they no longer have power over us. They no longer are able to have victory over us. Christ has achieved complete victory over them and now we have victory over them as well. Who are these rulers and authorities? Well, we don't have a lot of a a lot of revelation on that. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about this. But Paul does use these terms in other places. And we know this. These are angelic beings created by Christ for Christ. We look back in Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So these rulers and authorities are what? Created beings. 
we know this, that they became enemies of God. Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against, here's these terms again, rulers and against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And he, Paul says, we dare not think that the re- real issue that we face is created by humanity, but that the whole world system is controlled and orchestrated by rulers and authorities. They became the enemies of God and therefore what? The enemies of people. These have been defeated by God and subjected to Christ, according to Colossians 2.10. And in him you have been made complete, and he is head over all rule and authority. He now has conquered them. Ephesians 3.8, to me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which has for ages has been hidden in God and created, hidden in God who created all things so that the manifold of wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says men and women are saved. And as the church gathers, it's not so much what the world thinks. That's very small importance. But the angelic realm observes God's redemptive activity. They see the church They see God's saving redemptive plan as he saves his own. And so they are humiliated. They can no longer control. They can no longer overtake. And so as the church gathers, as the church sings together, as the church is built by more sinners becoming saints, they continue to humiliate and demonstrate the lack of power that they have. Not only are they neutralized by being disarmed, but also, he says, having triumphed over them. Triumph means, has the idea, it's a, a technical term that means to lead in triumph. In the imagery of Roman generals leading their troops in triumph. They used to go to battle and when they won, the, the the Roman general would come back and he would march through the city in a long procession, proceeded into the city. There would be those who had trumpeters and with the spoil, and then there would be those who were captive in battle. And he would display them in front of the city. These are the ones that we have captured. These are the ones that we have taken. This is the spoils of war. And so Jesus Christ has done that. He has overcome. The, the church will be built. Satan cannot overcome those whom God has saved. They can no longer follow him. They can, no longer can go against them. It's funny because you can imagine Satan and his hordes at Jesus Christ's crucifixion. Right? Can you imagine the delight? We've got him. Right? 
He's either going to give up on the cross or he's going to die on the cross. We're winning. We've got him in weakness. Look at the shame that is being brought upon him. They thought they were bringing shame on Christ through putting him in the grave in his burial. We could say, we would say this, one writer says, as Christ was suspended on the cross, no doubt the demons were having a carnival, seeing him bound hand and foot to the wood in apparent weakness and defeat. They imagined he was their victim, but how wrong they were. His crown of thorns would turn into a crown of victory when he rose from the dead. Rather than being defeated, he is now the one who leads in victory. He now has victory over Satan, over death, and over hell. He is now the victorious one. He has triumphed over them. He now leads them in a display of being captured and conquered. They are no longer able to go free. Their fate has been sealed. And so they are now conquered. So God has done what rescued us three ways here in this passage. He's re- he has rescued us from death. He's rescued us from sin. And he has rescued us from Satan's power. We no longer are conquered by him. We are no longer Uh, humiliated by him. He is a conquered foe and we have power in our Lord Jesus Christ over him. Well, this word triumph is also used in several other passages. It's used in Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about, I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of knowledge of him in every place. The same idea again is in, in, again, back to Ephesians. The same idea is talked about in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but each one of us, in verse 7, but to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. When a Roman general went to war, not only did he bring the, the booty and all of the treasure that they had won, not only did he bring the captured enemy through the city but he also brought the soldiers that were theirs that were again freed during the battle those who had been captured he now what 
brought them captive to himself. He led the captives captives is the idea. In other words, the Roman soldier now exhibited those who are what? Freed. And that is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He now what? Has freed us and he now exhibits us. We are now in his triumphant entry. We are now those who are his. And so when we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, we are part of what? That crowd. We are part of the crowd that has been what? Rescued. We are those that God chose from eternity past to put his love upon and has saved us. And so we too now march in triumphant with him. He has done this because we are in Christ. He has saved us from death, from sin, from Satan. And now we are in that triumphal walk with him because we are now captured by our Lord Jesus Christ and we are his forever. It's good news. He is risen. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. And we thank you that in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. And that because of what he has done for us, we will no longer be in, we are no longer dead spiritually, but alive that we will never have to pay the price for our sins because it has been canceled and wiped out. You have nailed it to the cross. You have paid it in full. And we praise and thank you that we will never be under the bondage of Satan who rules this world, the spirit of this world. But now we can have victory in him. And we praise and thank you that we are now those who have been captured by you and are triumphantly walking as yours. We praise and thank you that all of this is because of what Jesus Christ has done, that he died and rose again, that we might live with you. We give you all glory and praise in your name. Amen.